The Tom Woods Show, episode 1306. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, my away carry-on is everything I look for in a suitcase. It's lightweight, strong. It's got a really smooth glide through the airport. It's got a built-in combination lock a compression system for overpackers like me, and a laundry bag to boot. Get $20 off a suitcase when you go to awaytravel.com slash woods and use promo code woods during checkout. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. We are doing an informative episode, you know, like the others aren't. But this one in particular comes from Listener Demand in my special group over at supportinglisteners.com. I had somebody say, could you please explain to me or do an episode on stock buybacks? And I thought we could do that, but I'm not sure I would do a whole episode on that. Maybe we could do an episode where we take people's questions about the stock market. Because as soon as the person asked the question about stock buybacks, another person was asking about, I don't know what it means to short a stock, and I hear that all the time. There's a kind of lingo that's used here as in many other areas of life where people who are well-versed in it can converse easily and Everybody else is kind of left out in the cold. So we thought today we'd take a bunch of questions from the supporting listeners group And some of them will just be strictly informative. What does this term mean? I want to understand this better. And others of them may have a more libertarian angle. And joining me to do this are two great guests. The first one is a longtime guest of the show. That is Gene Epstein, formerly of Barron's, now the director of the Soho Forum, the eminent and amazing debating society in New York. Uh, You must attend every month. Check it out at thesohoforum.org. And remember that when you attend, find Gene, Go up to him and simply say the name Tom Woods and you get a free drink from the bar. Also joining us this morning is, I shouldn't have said morning, that that, that dates it. Well, anyway, all right, it's, that's a rookie mistake, even though I'm 1,300 episodes in, is Alex Merced, who has worked on Wall Street for 10 years and who also happens to be the vice chair of the Libertarian Party. Alex, can you just start off by taking a minute to explain to people what, in fact, it is you do? So I've spent the last 10 years working as a trainer for uh, Greco Financial Training. So basically, when anyone gets hired on a Wall Street firm and they need to get their licenses, their Series 7, their Series 24, their Series 27, oftentimes they'll send them to one of our classes. They will hire us for private tutoring. Um, We've also done sort of higher level sales training, industry training. But basically, somebody needs training on Wall Street, they come to us. Okay, very good. All right, let's jump into the questions. The first one, as I say, had to do with stock buybacks. And let's start off by trying to give a dispassionate explanation of what it is. We're not trying to get into the merits or demerits. We just want to know what it is, why a company would engage in it. So uh, either of you who wants to show, whoever's first to jump in can start. Oh, it it was a tie. Okay. Alex. I've had 13, 14 episodes on the Tom Woods show, and you have had, had fewer than, than that Baker's dozen. So go ahead, Alex. <laughs> yeah, I'll just do a, a quick academic explanation. So a stock buyback is just basically when a company buys back its own shares, which it can do for several different reasons. It might want to do so to give provide shareholder value, because basically, if there is less shares in circulation, the value of those shares are higher do so because it needs to accumulate shares to give to their employees as compensation. And other reasons are just basically, well, actually, those are the two main reasons why companies do shareholder buybacks. But all it is is a company taking money or borrowing money to buy back its own shares and taking them out of circulation. Yes. Let me add to that because, uh, you know, I do want to editorialize a little bit. 
and also add, Tom, that relevant to my background is I, I spent nearly 14 years as a planner and senior economist at the New York Stock Exchange before uh, going to Barron's. Uh, so know a little bit about these things. Everything Alex said is quite accurate, uh, but the key point, a couple of key points are first that you might ask if companies are throwing out the cash, there might be a uh, an inclination to declare a higher dividend or to start. And why wouldn't they do that? Why wouldn't they declare, declare an extra dividend? Well, Alex mentioned that they may want to you know, limit the number of shares. But the other reason why they may not want to declare a, a larger dividend is because of perception. If they suddenly have a huge bump in the dividend uh, in one particular year, then crazy people in the press are going to start saying that they cut their dividend the next year. Perception trumps reality, and that's why they're inclined to issue it as cash just for that reason alone, rather than issue it as a buyback, rather than as a dividend for that reason alone. But then also, from the standpoint of the investor, bear one thing in mind. You own, let's say, you know, a thousand shares of this company, and the company is buying back, you know, well, let's say three, four percent of the shares. Now you could sell. You might want to sell, you know, a hundred of your of your thousand share hoard because it, it, this gives you an opportunity to to manage your cash flow. A dividend that they declare every quarter imposes cash flow on you. But for tax and other personal reasons, you might not want that cash. So in a sense, the buyback is an option uh, given you. And if you're also a little bit disturbed about the stock, you might want to cut down a little bit. So the idea that the buyback hurts investors is ridiculous. It actually, in a sense, is an advantage. Now, prior to, uh, I think it was about, what, 2002, 2003, when the Bush administration forced through a parity between capital gains and dividend taxes, prior to that, buybacks actually had a huge advantage because you'd incur a capital gain, which was cheaper than the tax you paid on shares. Now, there's been parity now for 15 years. That's religiously maintained, so there's no special tax advantage. However, there is a timing advantage. You can sell to the company, you can take some of their cash if you want. So in that sense, it's good too. Let me add only one other point. It's both good and bad. The company is buying their shares, it's gonna be boost the stock a little bit. But also, it's a signal that the company is in a mature phase. It has a lot of cash, it's in a mature phase, and mature companies are not growth stocks. No, mature companies are in their mature phase, and you may want to question where you stand with that company, because it definitely is, in that sense, a bad sign. The company is not sees no investment opportunities because it's too mature. And also, by the way, because if it's Amazon or or uh, or, or Microsoft and uh, or Apple, Apple had huge buybacks. Microsoft had huge buybacks. They could use that cash to buy up some of the competition, but they're afraid of antitrust, and so they can't do that. So in that sense, government is impeding them, and that's why the cash is is put into a buyback. Now, I don't mind spending a little extra time on this particular question because it has been in the news uh, quite a bit lately. People have been talking about it. Let me add in something Jeff Deist says because he also comes from this kind of – he comes from a financial background and and he dealt with taxes and also mergers and acquisitions and and, and, uh, stuff like that. So 
what he says is, and this is also in that thread because Jeff's in the private group also. He says, yeah. stock buybacks financed with debt, i.e. corporate bonds, are a serious red flag. Mm. Companies love this practice because, one, it gooses the price per share, and two, interest payments on bond debt are tax deductible while dividend payments are not. Mm-hmm. Buybacks are mostly a form of financial engineering that make companies look better for their audits without actually increasing revenue slash productivity and then dash dash fueled by low interest rates. Well, what do you guys think about that? And Jeff has a pretty thick skin. So if, if you don't agree with him, he'll, you know, he'll live. It's true that buybacks can make the company look better because you see an increase in the share price, but it's not without merit. So for example, let's say me and you were both 50% owners of a business. Every year when we get the profits, we split it in half. But if I were to borrow money to buy you out, well, now going forward, I get 100% of the profits each year. So it's not like by borrowing that money and buying those shares, I'm not getting any value of it. I do have a claim on future profits. But there is concerns depending on how you borrow the money, how long you borrow the money, the interest rate on that money that might hurt the company in the long run. But if I can borrow money at 1%, but the company continues to grow at, let's say, 3%, or my return on the profits that I get going forward is higher, then I'm technically making out on the deal. Well, I I would make a stronger statement and say that uh, Jeff uh, is absolutely right. Jeff Deist is absolutely right. My mentor, Baruch Lev, who wrote a book called Winning Investors Over, which is essentially advice to managers about the point that the one thing that managers, that CEOs never delegate is the management of their stock. He talks about buybacks and he says that you definitely will be sending a wrong signal to astute investors if you start borrowing in order to finance a buyback. Now, Microsoft did not borrow. They just had a lot of cash and uh, neither did Apple. But certainly to the extent that it does happen, and if it is more prevalent, Jeff is absolutely right. I, I should cite a, a recent study from Trim Tabs that showed that 50 percent of the uh, of the uh, 30 350 companies that recently did buybacks underperformed the overall market. Although there was another you know one third that did pretty well. So clearly, it, it is something to to look at. Did they finance the buyback through? borrowing or was it cash and are they simply signaling that they're a mature company that they might be impeded by antitrust and they see the advantage in doing a buyback so indeed i think jeff dice is making a very key point about the difference uh, it isn't always borrowing but to the extent that it is it is a red flag when somebody in the group asked about what it means to short a stock i gave him an answer but i think there are probably a lot of other people who would like to know about this and there there have been during the financial crisis, there was temporarily, uh, I don't know if it was an outright ban, it may have been, on shorting stock. So first of all, mm. l- let's go over to uh, Alex for a minute. What does it mean to short a stock and how does somebody go about doing it? Now, shorting a stock just means you are literally borrowing somebody else's stock and selling it. Now, the way that works is that from a, if you're just an investor, you just go into your account and put in order to sell shares and you're now negative shares. But behind the scenes, the broker-dealer has other customers who are in what's called a margin account. In a margin account, you can borrow money from the broker-dealer. You can borrow stock from the broker-dealer. And what they're doing is that they're borrowing shares from other customers or their own shares and lending it to you so you can sell it. But you have to buy it back in the future. So the hope is the price goes down. I buy it at a lower price than I sold it for and keep the difference. It's like if I took someone's phone, sold it for 50 bucks, Found somewhere else where I can buy the exact same phone for 10 bucks and then pocket the difference. 
But sometimes people forget or don't borrow the shares and just sell. And that's what's naked short selling. And that's a topic for conversation. Yeah, I would. Uh, and Alex, of course, gave an accurate description of the technical aspects of it. It is, it is indeed a way to bet, a way to be a bear. You know, you bear down. You know, my my uh, my uncle, who was a broker, said uh, people didn't know the difference between bearish and bullish. Just think, you bear down, and bearish means you think the market is going down. Short selling is not for the faint-hearted because there is no question that in general stocks are rising. Uh, and so, but of course, there are uh, enormous opportunities in short selling, certainly with the benefit of hindsight. Even in a bull market, there are companies that fall by 20%, 25%. I, I, when I was at Barron's, I wrote a number of short selling stories, which I sort of enjoyed. And you can bet that the stock of the price of the stock will come down. To Tom's point about uh, short selling, it is indeed regarded as un-American. Alex, correct me if I'm wrong, but there still is the uptick rule governing short selling, which is that you cannot short a stock in a downtick. If the price goes down, you have to time it with an uptick. So there's a bias in that sense. And then I'm trying to remember, I think it was in 08, 09 was the last time that there was a temporary ban on short selling. And indeed, that's, that's of course, the government's version of shooting the messenger. And uh, it gets, uh, it, a lot of money has been made from short selling, and we should definitely lift the ban. There another way of betting that a market will go down, which does give you a lot of protection, is by buying a put. We can get into that as well. But those are the two main ways. You could also short uh, outright short stock index futures to bet that a stock will go down, or that the market actually, of course, stock index futures are mostly markets, but there are individual uh, futures for stocks. So you can bet that way as well. So there are many ways of betting that the stock market will go down. And indeed, Austrian um, free market types of the kind who uh, listen to the uh, to the Tom Woods show are often bearish on the stock market. So uh, there are definitely uh, opportunities. I mean, the broader point to make really is that the stock market is, prob- is clearly the most visible barometer of the business cycle. And so in a way, it is the worst messenger. It is really telling, in Austrian terms, it's basically the first messenger that's telling the Federal Reserve there could be trouble ahead. It over-anticipates. Uh, Paul Samuelson was right in his great quip, given that the stock market has predicted eight out of the last four recessions. It over-predicts, but it definitely responds, and it definitely alarms the powers that be, because it does bring a bad message, and that's why they hate short-selling. Just to elaborate on the uptick rule. So uptick rule basically is you can't short stock unless the price is going up. There's, originally, the rule existed for all stocks all the time. Then what happened is that after 2008, there was a temporary time in which the rule was gone, but it was brought back per stock. So now if the stock drops 10% from its open, then that uptick rule kicks back in for a day or two. But basically, that does hurt short selling because basically allowing people to sell and express that negative intent or perception allows us to find better prices. So that does hurt sort of market prices. Yes. And, and I mean, and then to elaborate further on the broader point, uh, the stock market is is a very valuable Hayekian collector of dispersed knowledge about where companies stand and where the economy stands generally. And uh, to choke off the messengers, the, the votes and the information that comes from short sellers, because short sellers 
by very their very nature, I could elaborate, but the very nature of short selling does bring selling pressure on prices. And that's a valuable information and should not be choked off. Can you guys talk about naked shorting? Because I've heard libertarians on both sides of the question as to whether that's legit and should be allowed. Okay, so um, naked short selling, again, it just means you're shorting shares, but you don't have the shares to short. So let's say I put in an order on Monday to sell stock and uh, short sell stock. The thing is that once upon a time, you had settlement would take, well, it currently takes two days to settle a trade. So I put in the sale on Monday and it won't actually settle, meaning we won't actually do the exchange for money and securities till Wednesday. So the problem is, if I don't borrow the shares from somebody, we won't realize that I'm not going to be able to deliver the shares till Wednesday. But the price has already fallen. And when people see the price fall, other people may decide to sell more shares because they see the price going down. And it'll create a momentum. So this is why people get concerned about naked short selling, because we won't reconcile that what some people see as fraudulent claim, fraudulently selling something you don't have. We won't resolve that till the earliest Wednesday, but the price has already dropped on Monday, causing momentum for the price to go further down as other people sell. So this is why people have an issue with naked short selling. Well, I, I uh, here I'm going to call on my inner Walter Block and say that, that of course, obviously, fraud uh, fraud violates the non-aggression principle. And so if you want to claim that somebody is fraudulent, then that might be legitimate. But as long as, but that might be a good argument. And it, given that argument, then all it requires is that a naked short seller say, look, I've got no clothes, I'm naked. Uh, as long as you say that, you're not fraudulent. And then as long as you're not fraudulently representing yourself to backers who might be giving you money to engage in your high risk, high gain dealings, that's not fraudulent either. So uh, as long as you don't commit fraud, which you don't have to do, I see nothing wrong with naked short selling. All right. I want to ask, because we have a lot of these, so let's let's move on to – this is something that Bob Murphy has a really great series of articles on topics like this. What is the function of a speculator in the sense of the defending the undefendable way of thinking? You know, Because most people will look at it and say a speculator is just gambling at a casino. But is that really so? Well, I, I cut, let me let me show this one because I I I, uh, I started out in commodity futures, the really uh, you know the real armpit <laughs> of uh, of capitalism. You know, people speculating in in pork bellies and wheat in those days, and uh, speculating in oil and uh, my God, grubby people making money from uh, you know from scarcity and all that. And clearly, uh, or land speculators. Clearly, what a speculator does is give quick information on the uh, conditions of supply and demand. It's part of the genius of American capitalism that futures and options arose, derivative products that give very quick price signaling. If you think that uh, piece of land, you know that it's going to be worth a lot, then the price goes up. And indeed, the futures market post prices, the stock market post prices, and you see that information about what goes on. That's that's why insider trading rules should be abolished, because the insiders that buy and uh, the price will go up and uh, the signal will be there. So they are the advanced messengers about supply and demand. And that's very valuable information when we should not shoot those messengers either. Alex, do you want to add? I 100% agree that insider trading rules, restrictions on speculating, restrictions on short selling, all hurt market signals. 
But speculators play that important role. They provide liquidity to people who are basically using the market to hedge, especially in futures. But like Gene said, they provide information. And if speculators get out of hand and they speculate too much, that's where short sellers come in. They come in and short sell the stock if they've overdone it. Vice versa, if short sellers overdo and push the price too low, speculators come in and push the price back up. So they regulate each other. But on top of that, you also have market participants who have a vested interest in watching out for market behavior, like clearing houses on exchanges who guarantee a lot of these transactions. They have an interest in monitoring these things. You don't necessarily need government oversight because an interest in doing a lot of these things is already there. I should add to Alex's point, if, you know, I, I lived through the coffee bubble, you know, when uh, a lot of crazy speculators were big, bidding the price of coffee up to over, at that point, over 80 cents a pound. And I knew that there were no fundamentals in it, that it was a completely ridiculous frenzy, and uh, it didn't last very long. So eventually, the, the, it's not just the short sales, but the fundamentals of supply and demand that do them in. And uh, I have no sympathy for those people who lose, but nor would I oppose them. You know, sometimes that price information is bad and sometimes it's good. It's a heck of a lot better than the price information from government when government what used to be massively hoarding uh, grain and hoarding supplies in order to manipulate the price. The private sector offers much more reliable information, as crazy as some of those speculators happen to be. They will get hurt, and those who don't do well will never come back because they don't have any more money to come back with. Let's get into a question that's more like definitions and concepts. So we've got somebody saying, all right, I hear NASDAQ, I hear New York Stock Exchange, I hear Dow Jones Industrial Average. Somebody explain to me what these are and what, you know, how the NASDAQ is different from, I, I don't even know where to begin. So how would you answer that? Basically, the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ are both exchanges. And the easiest way to think of an exchange is just to think of it as a place where everyone goes to buy and sell, in this case, securities, particularly stocks. But the Dow Jones and the S&P 500 are indexes. They're basically somebody taking a collection of different stocks, weighing them in a different way, and saying, here's a number, and then just taking that number day by day as an indicator of where the market's going. The big difference between the Dow Jones and the S&P 500 is how they're weighted. The Dow Jones is a really, really old index. So back in those days, they didn't necessarily have the technology to do what's called market cap weighting. So they did price weighting, which means the higher the individual share price per stock, the bigger the effect the stock has on the index. So one company with a large share price can literally move the index greatly one day, which is why it's not the best measure of the market. But if you're making headlines, you can compare the Dow Jones from like 80, 90 years ago, which is why people like it from a headline perspective. But the S&P 500 is market cap weighted, which means it doesn't matter what your share price is. It matters the total dollar size of your company. So $2 billion companies will have the same effect or weight on the index, making it a more sort of accurate measure of the market. Yeah, I would, I would add to Alex's point a couple of things. Number one, the NASDAQ, uh, which, which is technically used to be known as the over-the-counter market, doesn't, quite ha doesn't have you know, 11 Wall Street uh, as its address, uh, specifically where there's supposed to be a trading floor, although the, they've gone very electronic also. That's the New York Stock Exchange. The NASDAQ is disproportionately represented by tech stocks, and that's why it tends to be cited as a tech index. And the NASDAQ index is intelligently designed in the sense that it is 
capitalization weighted. So then as you multiply the price time, the number of shares, and you get the capitalization, and it affects the index in proportion then to its size. Uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is indeed an archaic index, brilliantly designed in the pre-computer age when they needed a back-of-the-envelope calculation and at a time when you could base it on 30 stocks that represented the market. But because it is price-weighted, it's gotten especially distorted. And also, I mean, in the, 19, in, the, in the late 1960s, it missed a lot of, the, it became the Rust Belt Index and missed a lot of the market. So for many years, it's been misleading. It's a misleading representation of what goes on in a day-to-day, a month-to-month basis. And uh, the way to cure yourself of it is simply to take the Standard & Poor's 500 and multiply it by 11, and then you get what the Dow would have been today. Now, how do I know that? Because if you take the Standard & Poor's 500 and track it against the Dow from the mid-1920s to the mid-1960s, they were in a pretty even 11 to 1 ratio. In other words, the the S&P 500 was about 1-11th in terms of number of the Dow, so just multiply it by 11. So the Dow is a Dowdy index. I When I worked for Dow Jones and Dow Jones owned the index, I wrote a couple of articles about it. And my editor said, look, you've done two articles about it. You're absolutely right. But please back off. This is our index. But then then Dow Jones sold the Dow Jones index and, and it was no longer an index the company cared about. So I would periodically knock it for the investors and say, look, if, if you want to look at it as a perception of what the market is, is saying, fine. But it's really gotten even more screwed up lately because these days because got a lot of companies that have way high prices that disproportionately influence it. So it's a dowdy Dow. Multiply the standard poise 500 by 11. Very simple calculation with your calculator and you'll get where the Dow should be today. All right. Let's go on to another, just a conceptual question. I have somebody asking what puts and calls are because we hear this all the time and they just like to understand it. Good, Alex. Got it. Puts and calls. Puts and yeah. calls are a type of derivative. There's lots of types of derivatives, but the basic idea is this: you're buying a piece of paper that says you can buy or sell stock at a set price. So if I buy a call option, I'm locking a price to buy stock for the next nine months. So for example, if I buy a call with a strike price of fifty, I can buy stock at fifty for the next nine months. So if the stock price goes up to eighty, I can now buy the stock at fifty, sell it at eighty. A put just does the exact opposite. It locks me in a price to sell. So if I buy a put with a strike price of 50, stock goes down to 30, I can use the put to short sell at 50, then buy back the stock at 30 and make the difference. So it just allows you to have another way to place a bullish or bearish bet on the stock. But at the same time, um, you're also putting up less capital up forward. So it allows you to leverage your money. So the $3,000 it may cost me to buy the stock now I can instead maybe buy two or three call options and multiply my return that way. And there are other investors who are on the sell side of those options that basically are doing the opposite. So if I use my call to buy stock, there's some other investors who I'm forcing to sell me those shares. And they're the seller of the call, the seller of the put. So it's just basically a bet between two parties. All right. Gene, do you have something? No, Tom, I want to elaborate and say Warren Buffett called puts and calls weapons of mass destruction in the 208 uh, debacle. And uh, again, they were simply, I mean, Warren Buffett should talk. He was a hypocrite. He himself was trading puts and calls, trading these WMDs. Because they are a two-way bet, 
They are just like futures are a two-way bet. They are a form of risk shifting. If you're holding a stock, you still want to hold it, say, because you think it does have some potential, but you're worried about where it's going. You could sell a call against it. You could sell a put and earn a premium on it. Uh, and so that, that, that shifts risk onto the person who bought the put or bought the call. They are perfectly benign instruments. Uh, they, they go back for centuries, perhaps infamously, the tulip bulb bubble, the bubble in the price of tulip bulbs, was mainly financed through call options. The holders of tulip bulbs sold options on the tulips. It was, it was actually a call option bubble. So bubbles can happen from puts and calls, but bubbles can happen from anything. And they do serve the, the purpose of risk shifting from seller to buyer. And so they clearly belong, and they're not WMDs. They have, just as Warren Buffett full knows, they have full well knows, they have a benign effect. All right, let's take a quick break here. I just discovered the other day that apparently one of people's favorite lines that I use on the show for the sponsors is describing myself as the king of the airport with my away carry-on. Well, now a lot of you who were with me on the Contra Cruise saw for yourselves just how great it is. I was using that thing the whole time, lugging around the different audio equipment and stuff we were using, and you could see how effortlessly that thing glided through the cruise ship. But on top of that, it's super lightweight, and yet, because it's made out of German polycarbonate, it's super strong. It's got a special compression system for overpackers like me, a TSA-approved combination lock, a removable, washable laundry bag, so much to say about it. You will be the king of the airport. And even better, for $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash woods and use promo code woods during checkout. That's $20 off a suitcase at awaytravel.com slash woods and use promo code woods during checkout. Because this season... Everyone wants to get away. All right, I want to jump ahead to, I don't know, maybe a juicy question like from a philosophical point of view. And that has to do with, does the stock market exist for any purpose other to enrich the few? Because that is the impression a lot of people have. It's the impression a lot of people have spread around. And then in tandem with that, I want to read you another question from the supporting listeners group. A person says, I once told a friend who claimed that the rich just hoard money that even if the money sits in a bank account, it is being used by others in the economy via loans. He disagreed and said it mostly goes to things like stocks and stock buybacks, which does not help the economy. So in that scenario, how does money from things like tax cuts that go to stocks and stock buybacks help the economy? I thought we might be able to address this whole kind of thing all together. So whichever one of you would like to go first, uh, it's a race okay. starting right now. Okay, I think I heard Alex first. Okay. <laughs> so... Uh Bottom line is this, all financial transactions generate value in some way. So by having public securities markets where people can trade stocks, where they can trade bonds, investors have liquidity. They have the ability to sell their investments when they want to get out of them and be able to jump in them whenever they want. This makes investors feel much more comfortable in committing larger amounts of capital to companies. And that means there's more capital for more people to start companies and for us to discover those new industries, those new ideas. And in derivatives like puts, calls, credit default swaps, et cetera, they all allow investors to also shift further risks so that way they're also willing to put more capital to work. So this all allows there to be more capital, more savings, more resources for people who want to start enterprises uh, than there otherwise would be. So it all generally works out for the better. And then basically, as uh, far as people hoarding money, one, 
it's put in a bank or put in a broker dealer, the money's going to go somewhere. Even if you do a shareholder buyback and I'm that investor who just got their shares bought back, I'm going to go reinvest that money. So that money doesn't just sit nowhere. But worst case scenario, even if the money was hoarded and it was just stuffed at a mattress, well, since there's less money circulating, prices would adjust and purchasing power of the money that is circulating would just increase. So markets work. Yeah, I, indeed. I, I'm, I'm happy that Alex put his finger really on, on the key point, which is that if you look at the history of the development of stock markets, the Buttonwood Tree Agreement, uh, which was in, I think, it was 1786 in New York City, which is supposed to have inaugurated the New York Stock Exchange, it was essentially companies were selling shares. And indeed, you could get people to buy shares if there was a promise that they could unload those shares at will when they needed to in order to, to suit their own cash flow needs. And so that indeed meant the secondary market was born. That is, as Alex has stressed, that is the fundamental purpose, which is that the fit, that it's a financial intermediary, the fit between the needs of ordinary people, of people who have money, through, of course, via mutual funds, via hedge funds, via insurance funds, or independently if they're retail investors, and the needs of companies, because if they're gonna issue shares, then they uh, need to give their investors a secondary market. Would you want to invest in a company and know that, you, that you're going to be locked up, the no exit strategy? You have to leave your money with the company forever? Of course not. That's the fundamental purpose. Beyond that, it does raise money. There are new issues of shares. It does raise money for companies that are already listed. So it serves that purpose as well. But if we're only just the secondary market, that would be a purpose enough. And it just arises from human needs, from human action. Literally, Mises has actually said that you can tell a mature capitalist country if it has a stock market, because the stock market is sort of like the next big iteration about uh, what goes on. Now, with respect to where the money goes, happily, happily, the Bureau of Economic Analysis, the government's official keeper of the national income accounts, has recorded that, for example, over the past year, capital investment Capital investment, which consists of investment in structures, equipment, as well as in, in intangible capital. That includes R&D, by the way, investment in software. It ran $2.5 trillion, a little over $2.5 trillion over the past 12 months. It's about 6.5% higher than it was a year ago. It's growing. Somehow or other, at the end of the day, $2.5 trillion does end up there. And by the way, we're talking about nearly a trillion dollars invested in R&D, in software. And that trillion dollars to the corporate uh, earnings statement has to be expensed. It has to clobber profits. It cannot be capitalized according to the crazy rules of, uh, imposed by the government in accounting. And, yet, and so it makes a company look bad. It made Bezos look bad. It's making Spotify look bad. Spotify, the musical, they're spending a lot of money on, on intangibles, which they cannot ex capitalize. Capitalizing it mean, means that only a little bit of it is deducted from profits. They have to appear that they're unprofitable. And yet, companies are, are making a trillion dollars, worth, nearly a trillion dollars worth of investment in these things. And so they were definitely long-term oriented. And so there, things are really not that bad. <laughs> Although, 
I would still want to abolish the government rule that every company has to report quarterly because that's putting companies on a Procrustean bed. It arose from distortions, distorted ideas in the 1930s. Some companies might re- report monthly. Some might report hour, uh, yearly. They can do it. Let a hundred flowers bloom. They want to convey messages to their shareholders. But putting all companies on a quarterly reporting basis is putting them all on a Procrustean bed. To that extent, it might encourage short-term thinking. But at the, at the end of the day, if companies are investing two and a half trillion in, uh, in, in plant equipment and, and in software, and if a trillion of that can it even be capitalized, then we know that by and large, capitalism is still operating in, in the U.S. economy. All right. I have a few more questions from the group that we'll be able to get to because there's so many we could do other episodes on it. But but as long as we're on it, can you guys explain what a hedge fund is? That's another thing people just say and everybody assumes that we know what everybody's talking about, but not necessarily. How would you explain that? A mutual fund for rich people. Uh, take it away, Alex. What else do you have to say? Oh, yeah. Basically, from, from a technical aspect, if you were to do like a traditional mutual fund, you have to register under the Investment Company Act of 1940. But, but the problem is that puts a lot of restrictions on you as far as what you can buy. You have to buy liquid investments because you have to be able to value your portfolio on a daily basis. So what people do is they create funds that only sell from 99 investors that sell those shares to what's called a Regulation D private placement where they only sell to rich investors. And by doing that, it doesn't appear legally like a mutual fund, so it doesn't have to follow those rules, which means they can buy investments that are not necessarily liquid, that they can actually impose rules on when people can take their money out. So hedge funds are really designed to basically not be a mutual fund in a legal sense, so that way they have more things they can do. But that makes them less liquid. Uh, they take on sometimes riskier investments. So you have to do your due diligence when investing in one. Yeah, the uh, well, I, I think you said, Alex, that no, that you and me, at least I certainly, don't have enough money to invest in a hedge fund. I think I maybe had, there's some hedge funds that accept as little as a half a million dollars, but I think that most of them require a million, certainly uh, the few that I know. So, And a million dollars is a fair chunk out of my assets, and I don't know if I – so therefore, it's definitely for people in the multi-millionaire class – uh, and indeed, because they're supposed to be sophisticated investors, the hedge funds, by the way, then can report year, uh, yearly if they want. They're given more latitude uh, than are the mutual funds. You know, we small fry uh, have got to invest in mutual funds. And uh, that's a, a bit unfortunate. The mutual funds have more restrictions on how they can trade. And uh, I, I don't really think all the research shows that at the end of the day, this doesn't do a whole lot of good. I mean, with that said, the record uh, in the aggregate of the hedge funds and of the mutual funds is that they don't beat the market. They don't beat the market in the sense that if you simply, you know, that's index, uh, that's index fund investing. Uh, and index fund investing simply means structuring your uh, investments so that it completely mirrors and tracks usually the S&P 500 or the, or the top 250 stocks in the S&P 500. So you're just bet, betting on the asset, just betting that the stock market will go up in the long run, which generally does very well for you. Stock market does keep ahead of inflation. But it's amazing that, of course, I was at Barron's. Barron's is a rogue publication. We like to poke fun at the craziness that goes on in the market. And by and large, 
hedge funds and mutual funds do not beat the market. And you wonder why do people still invest in it? Well, because hope springs eternal. Why do people buy lottery tickets? So that's the actual reality. And uh, it's very difficult to find investors who've beaten the market uh, overall, although you certainly can find a few. All right. Tom Mullen asks this. I've noticed a lot of companies beat earnings due to buybacks, but miss revenue expectations, meaning they're not really growing. Do these anecdotal observations represent an overall trend? And what do you think it means? Well, because the, the, I guess because the arithmetic that you reduce the number of shares and keep your earnings and your earnings per share ratio improves. But go ahead, Alex. What, what were you going to say? Yeah, basically, these are two separate trends. So basically, you want to look at both. So if a company's earnings per share is increasing because of share buyback, that's still good because with a share buyback, that just means your share owns a bigger piece of the company. So you still are getting a bigger piece of future profits. But if its revenues aren't growing, that could be a signal for uh, or a negative signal for future profit growth, which may be which could be something of a concern. You have to take a look at several years out what their plans are. You do have to do a deep dive. But again, I guess that would be more of a concern if they finance the buyback via debt, because if you finance the buyback via debt, but you don't really have increases in profits down the road, then that can catch up with you. Yeah, uh, the um, in, indeed, I mean, I think it goes back to the point about the, the buyback being sort of a dual signal. It does mean that that the managers are signaling that uh, that buying the stock, that, that they have got a decent stock. That's, of course, if they're doing it without borrowing. It's a strong company. It's got a lot of cash. That was as for the most again the the standout examples were Apple and Microsoft and uh, and they certainly were strong companies when they when they made the purchases but of course Microsoft especially of course was signaling that it was a mature company and uh, and mature companies uh, don't necessarily have a great future. All right, let's uh, do a couple more. Here's just a basic one: Why do some companies pay dividends and others don't? So the bottom line is that there's two types of companies. Uh, well, there's plenty, but. Think of it as growth and income. So generally, a growth company is a company that's just kind of getting started. It's earlier on in its life cycle. So when it does, it probably doesn't have profits. And when it does, it takes those profits and reinvests them back in the company. Because if I can reinvest it and grow the company 10%, it's a lot better than paying you a dividend that equals 1%. So in the early stages, the company is generally growing and reinvesting. So it's not going to pay dividends. There comes a point when the company gets so big, just sort of the big numbers, it's harder to get an additional percent of growth. So now it probably makes more sense to give you a 3% dividend when reinvesting that money may only give you 1% growth in the company. So there's a point when the company gets so big that the company kind of makes that transition into an income company that'll pay you a regular dividend. And uh, Gene mentioned earlier that a company may signal that transition by doing a buyback and starting to do buyback as it gets into that point. So um, yeah, that's the difference. Yeah, I mean, I, and I and I should add that that certainly it's it's healthy when companies pay dividends. I, I think it was a good point made by Burton Melkiel uh, that it, it, actually, again, when the Bush administration lowered the the tax on dividends, put it in parity with capital gains, companies started to pay higher dividends, more dividends, uh, because the, uh, the, the there was no longer a tax disadvantage. In the old days, when there was a tax disadvantage, people wondered why the shareholders want dividends at all. Well, one of the key points is that with the rise of, of retirement funds, of 401ks and IRAs, the dividend payout is not taxed right away. You can reinvest it. 
because uh, uh, the 401k has a tax shelters all the income for the uh, for, during the period when the money is in the 401k until until you want you have to cash out when you're 72. So that was one advantage. Plus, it was a signal. It was a healthy signal that at the end of the day, companies might be able to finagle their accounting. But if they were were able to pay a healthy dividend, that was a clear signal that they were reasonably in reasonably good shape. And and it was valuable from that standpoint as well. But again, as as Alex points out, companies will pay dividends. That's a sign of a, a certain amount of maturity and strength. And growth stocks, of course, can't afford to do so, so they don't pay dividends. Uh, you know what, Gina? I want to. I, I just now saw the rest. I didn't. I only looked at the preview of your email. I, I no. only just oh. now read it. So I want to oh. give you an opportunity to. to I want to raise a couple more things just to give you an opportunity to say things that are on your mind. Sure. Uh, we dealt with one of these claims that the stock market just enriches the rich and serves no yeah. other purpose. Yeah. But what about then the other one we hear is that managers of publicly traded companies are mainly focused on the short run. Yes. And now I don't know if that has to do with the so the bifurcation between management and ownership that we've heard sometimes, but how do you want to address that? Yeah, well, I, I, I did mention in passing, uh, the key point that's, that's cited is that, is that the quarterly, the need to meet your quarterly earnings, uh, is, uh, warps, uh, managers in the short run. The, the, the managers are definitely managing the company. They are making the decisions. And so we, I mean, I, I think this whole idea that managers are not operating their companies like they're profit making, all of that stuff. As a matter of fact, Murray Rothbard laid that to rest very effectively a long time ago. They do have incentives to maximize profits. There's, very, there's obviously potential for some abuse, but the idea that it's rampant is ridiculous. By and large, they operate more as profit maximizing companies than others do. But getting to the short run idea of the quarterly earnings, which requirement, the first response there is that's being imposed by government, just as I said earlier. And if if, it, if there were no government regulation that companies have to meet, have, have to meet quarterly earnings hurdles, uh, then probably you'd have a number of them issuing monthly statements or and a number of them issuing yearly statements. They would have to respond to what they perceive of as the needs of their shareholders, counterbalanced by the trade-off that they have to be given some time. Uh, on top of that, if companies were allowed sane accounting standards, uh, uh, then they would be able to depreciate investment in a research and development and in software, but that has to be expensed. What is an expense? An expense is something you pay. It, it, it's a current expense. Something you, you you pay wages. You buy materials. That's a current expense. An investment not only includes investment in 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 capital in in, in plant and investment in equipment for the future. That's for the future. It's also investment in R and D in software and indeed in advertising. And all of those R and D invest R and D software and advertising has to be expensed, and so that's also a disincentive. And yet, why is it ultimately a myth? It's ultimately a myth because even despite that, there are more than a trillion dollars a year is spent on R and D and software and advertising and other uh, uh, intellectual products, more than a trillion dollars a year. That's on the future, and they have to expense it. If they really were that short-run oriented, they wouldn't be doing that. So that's why, fundamentally, it's a myth, despite 
the depredations of government, lift the depredations of government having to do with accounting and having to do with the need to, to make quarterly earnings statements, and they'd even be more short, uh, they'd be even less short-term oriented. But as it is, it's mainly a myth. They are investing for the future, $2.5 trillion a year, which includes plant and, and includes equipment. And let me let me ask, do you feel like you've said what you want to say on the subject of whether the stock market bilks the average investor or do you want more time on that? Well, I, I, if you don't mind, I, I would say I, I, every year I published and, and probably this year as well, I, I still do a column for Barron's Advisor Center online called Economist Corner. And I, I update uh, the research of Jeremy Siegel, which starts in 1871. And there has never been if you simply buy the market, just in your 401k, buy the Standard & Poor's 500, so everything is reinvested, uh, your dividends are reinvested, and uh, you uh, you incur no taxes until you start cashing out. So if you did that, starting in 1871 to the present, there never would have been a 30-year period in which you would not have beaten inflation, usually beaten inflation on average by about 6 to 7% a year, which compounded means you would have doubled your money every 10 years. Uh, similarly, there never would have been a 20-year period in which you wouldn't have beaten inflation. Anytime, that that even means selling at, at the lows at, in, the, in the crash of 29 or in the crash of 2008. Even then, your returns would have been lowered, but you would have beaten inflation even then. Now, on a 15-year basis, you would have beaten inflation 99 times out of 100. So despite the rockiness of the stock market, which is indeed mainly a reflection of the rockiness of the economy, which is a reflection of the business cycle induced by the Federal Reserve, despite all that, the stock market does quite well. In a free market, in a free market that was not subject to business cycles, the stock market would be an even steadier earner of income and would be far less volatile because, again, the stock market is basically the main barometer of instability in the business cycle. All right, Alex, do you have a final word? Because I think we're going to leave it there otherwise. Okay, I guess uh, basically I'll just say thank you, Tom, for having me on. It's been an honor to be on the show with, with you and Gene, a big fan of both of you. And um, basically, if anyone wants to uh, learn more about what I'm doing, uh, go to alexmerced.com, uh, where you can find links to everything that I'm doing in the Libertarian Party and otherwise. Uh, I have a lot of videos about economics and finance, where I go over all of these topics over there at learneconomicsnow.com. And um, if you're ever thinking about uh, going into the financial industry, need your Series 7 or your SIE license, uh, get in touch. I'll be more than glad to help out. And next our forum is January 14th at uh, Vico Street. I'm sure Alice will be there saying the word Tom Woods for his free drink. It's going to be a debate on segregation and housing, January 14th at the SOA Forum. Well, thank you for that, Gene. And I'm glad, <laughs> Alex, that you mentioned those sites because that was going to be my next question to you. Because <laughs> yeah. everybody knows the SohoForum.org right. by now, I would Sorry, hope. And by the way, I want to keep promoting it for everybody who hasn't yet because everybody you, in New York sh should be uh, heading over there for those events. Yeah. But, but Alex, I definitely want people to check out AlexMerced.com and LearnEconomicsNow.com is a pretty good – I mean that's almost Tom Woods level domain name snagging you did there with Learn Economics Now. I learned from the best. <laughs> A lot. All right. So I'll put both of those or, or all the links we just mentioned uh, on the show notes page, tomwoods.com slash 1306. And thanks to both you gentlemen. Um, everybody, I have no doubt, appreciates it. Thank you, Tom. Happy New Year, Tom. Happy New Year, everybody else. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
All right, folks, that's going to do it for today. If you are enjoying this program and you appreciate what I'm doing over here, then I would be delighted if you became a supporting listener over at supportinglisteners.com. You get many, many benefits, not least of which is membership in my notorious private group. So check that out over at supportinglisteners.com. Fill my heart with gladness, and I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Gene, let me just jump in here. Let me see what the time is. Um, if you have to cough, can you just leave a little bit oh, of I'm space? Sorry. Well, just leave a little silence before, a little silence after, and then we can we can edit it. But if it's if it's flowing into your words, we can't take it out. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's no problem. Uh, and then secondly, whenever your birthday is, I am buying you a non-squeaky chair just for when you're on the Tom Oh, Wood for show. God's sake. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. I'll, I'll stop. I can, I can, look, I can it'll be your up. special Archie Bunker chair. You can okay. sit in just Thank for the Tom Wood show. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. I can, I can, I, I don't, look, I didn't know the squeaking was coming up. Okay. Oh, anyway. it's, it's quite all right. No, no, it's, okay. it's, it's what, it, it, it's part of the overall Gene Epstein pack. Exactly. Yeah. You know? Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I'm all not right. going to squeak from now on. No coughing. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Let's, let's, uh, let's go back in here. Here we go.